Welcome to the Ginghamsburg Podcast. After today's message, take a second to download the Ginghamsburg app. It's the best way to find out about and engage with what's happening at Ginghamsburg. We hope the following message helps you activate your faith and take the next step in your journey with Jesus. Hey, everybody. Good morning. I love that part of that song. All my life, you have been faithful. Even when I haven't been faithful at times, Lord, but you've been faithful. Your grace has been there all the time. All my life, you've been so, so good. Even in times when I didn't feel good, (laughs) I've leaned on your goodness and your glory. And therefore, I come each day as a new creation to worship you, to praise you. And on this day, I give you my heart. So it's with those thoughts that we gather to worship today. It's good to see each and every one of you. Welcome to those in the balcony. I see you this morning, those worshiping online. Thanks for joining us and worshiping with us this morning. We're kicking off a three-week series on worship. And so let's begin with words of worship from King David in the Psalms. Psalm 95, verses 1 to 3. Here these words of scripture. Sing joyful songs to the Lord. Praise the mighty rock where we are safe. Come to worship him with thankful hearts and songs of praise. The Lord is the greatest God, the king over all other gods. Hallelujah. Amen. Great. Well, yeah, let's give God some praise. You are the God, the king over all other gods. Well, within every heart, there is a passion, a tendency to worship something. Many of us in this room think worship is just a religious thing, but all know there's in, within each of us a longing to worship something or someone or in some Place. So when you think of worship, what comes to mind? Perhaps for you, because of your upbringing or because of the culture, you think of coming into a building, you think of sitting in a chair or a pew, you think of listening to other people on a platform or on a stage, experiencing wonderful things and going home. And that is worship to you. For others, it is coming and together. It is picking up a book, a hymnal. It's singing a few familiar songs and offering other prayers, some written, some just from the heart, and then going home. For others, it's on the golf course. I don't know what you think worship is, but when you think of worship, what comes to mind. Perhaps it's people standing like that photo behind me, people with hands raised. But when we think about it, there are other venues in where people gather with hands raised. Have you ever been to Ohio Stadium or to the jungle in Cincinnati or other venues like that? Think about your favorite team. Let's say that your favorite team would be in Columbus and it's a Saturday afternoon in the fall, and you are there 
with 105 screaming fans, right? All there to worship. The year that I had season tickets a few years ago, right before the band would come out of the tunnel for the Buckeye battle cry, my buddy would always lean over and say, it's time to worship, pastor, <laughs> right? And we would gather with a song. We'd gather and singing a common song together, whether it be common, Carmen, Ohio at the end, right? Think about your favorite team down on the five-yard line. Hardly anyone is sitting on their hands, right? They're up on their feet. They're chanting. They're praising. They're yelling. And then think about your favorite team, whether it be a college team or an NFL team, crossing over the goal line. What happens in that moment? People are on their feet. They have their hands in the air in praise. They're shouting. They're screaming. They're just giving all kinds of glory for their team. The band is striking up. So the band is going and all together in one chorus, they're in worship. Some stadiums, grown men will take off their shirts They'll paint themselves with, in a sense, ancient war paint, and they will give praise to their team. Ever seen those crazy people in the dog pound in Cleveland, right? They go all out for their team, right? In other stadiums, people take towels or handkerchiefs or whatever they have, and they wave them, and they twirl them in the air in praise of their team. Friends, that is worship. That is giving adoration and in glory to another thing. We were created to worship something. Perhaps it's not a sports team. Perhaps it's an individual or a group. How many are old enough to have heard of Beatlemania? Those four boys from Liverpool circled the globe and young people in the 1960s went crazy. They raised their hands, they shouted, they praised, they fainted at times. Now, I know there's a tendency for some of our young people, maybe our high schoolers or early 20-somethings to look at that and say, man, grandma and grandpa, they were something else back then. We would never do anything like that. Let me remind you of 10 years ago of your beaver fever. <laughs> and by the way, if you have beaver fever, you can come down to the stage at the end of the service. We've got prayer partners that can pray for you to be delivered today. How many today are willing to stand in the cold for five or six hours just to buy Taylor Swift tickets? We all worship something. Maybe it's a passion. Maybe it's a hobby that we give all of our full devotion to. Pastor Tim Keller, who was a well-known pastor in Manhattan, now retired, has said this about worship. All of us worship. He said this, idolatry is when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. What is an idol anyway? What is an idol in America? Well, it's more than a music show, American Idol. An idol is more than just a little statue. An idol is actually anything that's been created 
that could be used for good, but we take that and we worship that. We put that into the number one spot in our life or we make that the ultimate. Instead of worshiping the ultimate creator, we worship the creation. What idols are in our life? What idols do we worship? There are many different idols or things that can become idols that are actually good things that we can make the ultimate thing in place of God. Money can be an idol. Now, is there anything wrong with money itself? No, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, but not money. Money is a neutral thing. It's actually a good thing. We all need it. We all use it. How many plan to eat lunch today? How are you going to get that food? Well, you're going to go to the grocery store or you're going to go to a restaurant and there's going to have to be an exchange take place. So we use currency to do that. So money is not bad in itself, but it becomes a God when we begin to think and we begin to live. If I just have more zeros in my salary, then I'll be secure. If I just have more zeros in my bank account, then I'll be fulfilled. Maybe it's not money, it's power. Power can be a, a God. How many of us spend our focus climbing up the corporate ladder? A dog-eat-dog -dog world. Or if I just had a few more letters, degrees, beyond my name, then people would respect me, then I would be something. Or perhaps it's not money, it's not power, but it's relationships. Relationships are a good thing. We love our parents, hopefully. We love our children, hopefully. If we are married, we love our spouse, I pray, right? Relationships are a good thing, but they cannot become the ultimate thing, but our culture's consumed with this perfect relationship. Think about the songs on the radio, almost every one. I need you, I want you, I can't live without you, baby, right? <laughs> We're consumed. If we just find someone that will love me, I'll never want anything else in my life. We were born to worship something. We were born to give our energy, our talents, for something or someone. Unfortunately, many of us settle for lesser gods and lesser goals. When Psalm 95 reminds us to worship the one true God who is the ultimate, that he is the king over all other gods. He is the rock in which we should anchor our lives to. What are the gods in your life? What is your ultimate? What do you really worship? Where do you spend your focus? We can have passions. They can be good things. Hobbies can be good things if they don't replace the ultimate. I have hobbies. Many of you know I love motorcycling. I'm good at it. I've been doing it for 40 years. And yet I need to be careful it does not become an idol. But you know what my greatest struggle of idolatry is? It's my relationship with my wife, Rachel. I can put her at the focus of my entire life. And of course, I know that I'm her idol. <laughs> there you go. Come kiss me, baby. Come kiss me. 
But here's what I know about my, that wasn't playing by the way, as far as we're coming up. Here's what I know about my relationship with my wife. The sobering reality is that one day, one of us will look at the other person in a casket. It's guaranteed that one day, one of us will leave the other person, I assume in death. And the truth is that if we've made our God the one who's in the casket, then who is going to be there as a rock that we can anchor our lives to? Do you get it? God says, I want to be your ultimate. I want to be your number one. I want you to worship me. People all around this world are worshiping things. We all worship. It's not just a religious thing. Like my friend who said at the Buckeye game, it's time to worship. Who do you worship today? Now, as Christ followers, of course, it's a given that we worship God, that God is on the throne, that God is the center of our worship. And as a Christ follower, then I'm called to put him there and to do it privately and worship in my car, in the shower, and at home, and in the woods, and on a walk, but also corporately in obedience to his word and coming together, breaking bread together, fellowshipping together, and being part even of this community here. How do you do that? And why is there so much tension in the body of Christ today when it comes to how people worship? Not just in this place, but really, I would say almost in every church, you're going to find struggles and tension over worship. And if you're experiencing a little bit of that here in this worship service, you need to know that this is nothing new. This has been going on for at least 2,500 years. So let me show you in the Bible where there's tension in worship. Turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ezra. And let me set this up. 2,500 years ago, the people of God lived in Jerusalem and they were invaded by foreign invaders and many of them, the leaders, were exiled to a foreign land called Babylon. And so they left. Before they left, they had wonderful, beautiful worship in the temple, but now they were exiled in a foreign land. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we wept, the Bible says. Exiles all were we. We longed for Jerusalem. And then after 70 years under King Cyrus, they returned. Under Nehemiah, they rebuilt the city walls, and then they rebuilt the temple. And now after two years of being back home, they had their first worship service. Now, there were three different kinds of groups that had returned home. There were the older individuals. These individuals were at least over 70 years old, but probably over 80 years old. Now, they were a minority because most of the people were younger, but of course, in a big city, there would be several hundred, maybe thousands of people in this category. They had memory of what the old temple was like when they were young, and they could look back and they could remember the good old days. There was another group, their children, who had little knowledge of what the old worship style, the old worship was like 
or it was passed on by their parents. But then the majority of people, because remember, this has been 70 years, they were born in captivity. Now back to Jerusalem, they had no prior knowledge of the old ways. You get it? Of the old temple. So all three groups are coming back in this worship service. What was it going to be like? Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. Let me just read it to you. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest in their vestments with the trumpets and the Levites, who were they? Those are the worship leaders, sons of Apha, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So this was their dedication service, right? Now, check this out. This is what I want you to get here. Don't miss it. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the formal, former temple wept out loud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sounds of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. So in the same worship service, there were people with sadness, there were people with joy, there were people that were weeping, because they were remembering the past and then there were people who were experiencing it in the present and just celebrating, cheering and weeping. Wow, things haven't changed much in 2,500 years, have they? It's not surprising. What's going on here? What's going on here is a clash of culture. This all has to do with the place of our memory. For the people who remember how worship was in their day, it was special to them, and they remembered. Perhaps it wasn't going to ever be the same. For those who had never experienced how it used to be, everything was just brand new and exciting. And so we had this, and this is what happens at Gainsburg, at what happens at other churches too. There are those who perhaps in 1973 at a camp meeting, they came to know Jesus as their savior. Those songs touched their hearts and the, the liturgies and the forms of worship that they experienced them meant a lot to them. For those who, this was all brand new, this Christian movement and what they've experienced is in the now, those old forms really meant nothing to them because they did not have that shared memory. It happens even in our church where people who had wonderful, even glowing experiences in this room 20 years ago when we were the ninth largest church in the nation at one time, known all over this nation. And there are others who weren't part of that, who have no knowledge of that. And so they don't remember those times. They just remember what's happening today and what's happening today. They're experiencing Jesus today. Do you see it? Or... Those who, maybe things that the last pastor did, they remember that, that we don't do now, but others who are brand new didn't experience that, you see? And there's tension. Can you feel the tension? It's because 
people are coming from different places in their memory. What's the answer? It's the answer of understanding what is the heart and object of worship. And I want to make a statement here that's going to be the foundational statement for not only today, but the next two weeks, that if we can get this, it'll change our whole view of what worship is. Are you ready? Here it is. God is the object of our worship. Would you say that with me? God is the object of our worship. We need to realize that God is the audience on Sunday morning when we're singing. Not us. We're not the audience. God is the audience. And the people leading on the stage, they're not performers. They're prompters of the performers. Who are the performers in a church service? The congregation. We are. Who is the audience? God is. That is so hard for us to understand because in every other venue in our society, it's a 180. It's different. If we go down to the rows at the heights, who's the audience? We are. We paid good money for this. It better be good. Who's the performers? The artists, the professionals, so to speak, on the stage. They're there to entertain. If we go down to Victoria Theater and down, who's the audience? We are. Who's the performers? The actors and actresses. But in the church, we are the performers, in a sense. God is the one who gets the praise. And the people on the stage, their job, the Levites, so to speak, biblically, their job is to lead us all in the, as a grand choir, amen, and chorus to God. Three times in this passage, we see the words to the Lord. They worshiped to the Lord in Ezra. Now, I have to admit, I grew up in church. Not everybody here, under the sound of my voice, grew up in church. Not everybody here has prior memories of how it used to be, right? And so I bring all that good and all the baggage as well. And I have to admit, I was never taught that God is the audience. I always thought that I was the audience. I thought church was for me and for others, that I'd come to church. It would be the best part of my week. It'd get my week going, right? I'd come to church to be prayed for, to be blessed, to be encouraged, and to be fed. Now, do we get that when we come as an overflow? Absolutely, and we should. But the primary focus is not the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. The primary focus is on God. When we do church, often we resort to being the audience. We do kind of like a movie critic. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Maybe you never did this, but we used to do it. <laughs> How'd church go today, Dennis? Well, I think it was about uh, a 6.3 on a scale of 1 to 10, you know. He sang today instead of her, and I like her voice better, but it was okay. Now, the pastor's sermon, how was the pastor's sermon? Oh, he had an okay one today. I think last week was a little better, but the first two points were pretty strong. He kind of fell apart on the last one, as if, you know, we're kind of giving a old Siskel and Ebert's thumbs up, thumbs down kind of a thing. And that's the way it often, and if we don't like it, we'll go somewhere else. When we think that we're the center of worship. 
Here's a couple statements about worship that'll help if you want to write these in your memory. Worship is not something I come to. Worship is something I come to do. Worship is a verb. It's not a noun. Worship is not an event that I show up for. Worship is something that I bring. And that statement has revolutionized my life. Words are not enough, Lord, to tell you of my love. So listen to my heart. Worship is responding to all that God is with all that I am. And all of creation is in on the act. Most don't use words. Isaac Watts discovered that when he was reading Psalm 98, and he ended up writing the Christmas carol, Joy to the World. In reading Psalm 98, he realized that all of creation was in on the act. And so I want to read part of Psalm 98 as a way that we can join the rivers, that we can join the mountains. Would you read that with me? This is from the message paraphrase. Let's read it together and join with all creation, Psalm 98. Shout your praises to God, everybody. Let loose and sing. Strike up the band. Let's read. Round up the orchestra to play for God. Add on a hundred-voice choir. Feature trumpets and big trombones. Fill the air with praises to King God. Let the sea and all of its fish give a round of applause. With everything living on earth joining in. Let ocean breakers call out encore and mountains harmonize the finale. A tribute to God when he comes, when he comes to set the earth right. All of creation is in on. I love what Frank Bucher says, Frederick Bucher on this act. Check this out. The whole creation is in on the act, being worshiped. The sun, the moon, the sea, the fire, the snow, the Holstein cows, the white-throated sparrows, old men and walkers, and children who haven't taken their first step. Their praise is not chiefly a matter of saying anything because most of creation doesn't deal in words. Instead, the snow whirls, the fire roars, the Holstein bellows, the old man watches the moon rise. Their praise is not something they say, but at their truest, who they are. And he says this, we learn to praise God, not by paying compliments, but by paying attention. Watch how the trees exult when the wind is in them. Mark the utter stillness of the great blue heron in the swamp. Listen to the sound of the rain. Learn how to say hallelujah from the ones who get it right. Amen. All of this is summed up in Psalm 150, where it says, let everything that has breath, what? Praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath, what? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's so good to be in your presence this morning. 
I know, Lord, that when we take Jesus Christ as our Savior, that you come and you take up residence in our life and you're with us all the time. But I also know that your word says that you inhabit the praises of your people. And God, it is my prayer that those of us who know Jesus Christ would turn into authentic worshipers. People who just worship you in private times, who worship you in our cars, who worship you in our showers, people who take time aside to be alone and to sing to you. And also, Lord, people who will come in obedience to your holy word and gather corporately like today for public praise and thanksgiving of you and for your glory. Lord, it is our heart as individuals and as a church that you'll truly turn us into authentic worshipers. For that is our prayer. And we pray it in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. I hope you enjoyed today's message. I've got two invitations for you before you go. First, subscribe to our podcast so it shows up in your feed every week. And if today's message inspired you and you'd like more people to hear it, you can give a financial gift through the Ginghamsburg app or online at ginghamsburg.org.